Father, we thank you that your grace indeed is enough for us. That's what we're counting on here tonight as we gather around your word, especially in light of the passage that we're going to look at this evening. I pray that you would bring clarity, encourage us, convict us, and ultimately comfort us by your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and take a seat. Um, and we are going to look tonight uh, at Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 21, verse 8, uh, which means, yes, we are picking up our series in Revelation again with just a couple more chapters to go until we reach the very end. Now, um, I mean, the, the truth is I was thinking about it this last week when I chose to go through Revelation. Uh, it was September of 2019. I had literally no idea as no one else did at the time, that 2020 would end up being such a weird, apocalyptic-type year with all sorts of extraordinarily unpredictable things. And yet, uh, could there be a more appropriate book that we have gone through off and on over almost the last year than this book? And so in the providence of God, we've been looking at all of this sort of relevant information. Now, uh, if you heard the last message that was given in Revelation, then you know that uh, the passage was all about the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, found in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And I won't review all of what I said because there's just not, not time, but basically for our purposes here today, I want you to know very clearly that I made the case there that after Jesus died and rose again, that we have been living under the figurative thousand-year reign of Christ, and we are in it right now. And I explained in the last message how it could be that, yes, I know it's been over 2,000 years or close to 2,000 years since that event took place, and that's more than 8,000, how that can work out, and you can go back and look at the message if you're curious about that. But I also made the case that this thousand-year reign is sort of a, it's a transitional phase of God's story in which the devil is said to be kind of held back from being as deceptive as he wants to be. That ever since Jesus came, that the devil has been more limited in what he can do than what he had done prior to the coming of Christ. And of course, if you just think about it from a very practical perspective, the devil literally had deceived the entire world into disbelieving God, limiting it, limiting it basically only to this tiny tribe in Israel that was not known for doing outreach at all, before the coming of Christ and what happens after the coming of Christ, the gospel spreads to the, basically the known world, all of the world as we know it. And so that's the transition phase that we had been in the thousand year reign. The devil is sort of, he's in prison. He's held back from being as bad as he can be, even now. And I'll get into how that can be in a little bit. And today, we're going to look at what happens when the whole thing finally comes to an end. When this thousand-year reign is over of Christ, and then God finally says, all right, the world as we know it is over. So, we'll pick up the story at Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And the first thing we're going to look at 
uh, about the end is the great battle of the end. John writes this, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now we'll stop there for now and then we'll continue reading in a bit. So as I mentioned last time, we hear that Satan has been in prison during this figurative millennial reign of Jesus we're living under now. Now the first instinct when you hear that the devil is imprisoned is to wonder how it can be that the devil is imprisoned when there's so much evil in the world. I mean, that's the obvious question. There's clearly evil. It seems like the devil's at work. Well, he is, but he's sort of like, um, like he's sort of like a mob boss in prison. Just because he's in prison doesn't mean that he can't still cause a whole lot of havoc, a whole lot of chaos. He's still working. He just can't do as much as he did. He's, he's a dog on a chain. But when we come to the end of the world, we're told that for a short time, Satan will be unleashed from this prison and is going to have a chance to do what he did so effectively before the coming of Christ, to once again go out and deceive the nations, specifically to the, deceive the nations into rejecting God and following him. Now, the nations here are referred to by the titles Gog and Magog, and they are going to go to war against the faithful people of God. They're represented in the, in the phrase, the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Now you say, okay, Eric, well, what is uh, Gog and Magog? Well, if you were to listen to any number of end times prophecy teachers back in the late 70s and 80s, then Gog and Magog probably was said to have been the Soviet Union and China. Many prophecy experts stake their life on that. Not so much anymore. And as a matter of fact, I would argue that that reading was more based on what they were reading in the newspaper than they were what they were reading in the biblical text. Because Gog and Magog comes from the prophecy of Ezekiel, in which he describes the Old Testament people of God's oppressors by those same names. Now again, because in Ezekiel's prophecy, they are said to come from the north, people went, hmm, what's north of Israel? Yes, Russia, mm, it's going to be a Soviet Union, China. But that doesn't work with the text in Revelation because Gog and Magog here are not said to merely come from the north, but Gog and Magog here are said to be armies of people coming from the four corners of the earth, from everywhere. The point, the point of all this, at the end of the world, Satan is going to make his last stand to try and take out the church with the people that he's deceived into rejecting God from all over the world. And yes, there will be a great final battle of history. That is what Revelation teaches. 
Now, over the years, I have had people ask about this final battle and wonder whether they can be a part of it. These are friends of mine that, you know, tended to look forward to getting into fights and were always sort of wanting to be fighting for the Lord. Like, you know, the one thing I do well is fight, and I'd, be able to, I'd love to be able to fight in God's army. But that's not going to be the case. Nobody in God's church is going to be fighting like the demonic horde. You are not going to be raising a sword if you're there for the last battle. That's not the way it is. Why do I say that? Let's go back to verse 9. As the, the, the hordes of those that Satan has deceived come against the people of God, come against the church, what does it say at the end of verse 9? But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice who's doing the verbs. The heavens. God is going to be the one that defeats the enemies of his church. As the people of God are besieged on all sides by Satan's armies, God consumes them with fire from heaven. And finally, finally, this is the moment that Satan is defeated. The devil is vanquished. So I guess the question in my mind when I was reading this, this week, and I was sort of prepping for this, was could we be already in this short period of time before the very end? Could it be that we're already out of this figurative millennial reign and we're in the last days and Satan is really coming at the church right now? Is he actively gathering armies to rise up against God's church? Well, I think the answer is, and this is the answer that will satisfy no persons. Maybe. On the one hand, do we see people deceived and rejecting God all over the world today, and especially, especially here in the West, which it seems it's continuing to happen more and more and more as the culture continues to embrace ideas and ideologies completely counter to God's word. I mean, sometimes we might get the sense like, man, you know, it just seems like we're going to use an old tiny phrase, hell in a handbasket. You know, we're, we're sliding down. Cultural decay. I think part of the reason that so much sort of popular level end times uh, writing is so popular in the culture I mean, for a long time, the most popular book in American history was a book about the end times written by a man named Hal Lindsey. This is true. There's, there's vast appeal to this, to, to thinking about the end, and I think part of the reason that, that the West is prone to thinking that we could be at the very end right now is because we tend to only look at what's happening in the West. And if you're only looking at what's happening here, then you can go, you know, chicken little skies falling, whatever. 
But if you look at what's happening in the, around the world, well, then it's not, it's not so clear that we are in such a time at all. Yeah, maybe the West is drifting away from God slowly but surely, although I don't even know that the data is that persuasive that way either. Yes, we're not in sort of Christendom anymore, and we're not what, whatever the church was, but I don't know that it's like as drastic as some sort of uh, people want us to believe. But setting aside the West, take a moment to get outside of, of sort of the, the shades of life around here and look at what's happening in the global south and in places like Africa and in China where the gospel is spreading faster and more widely than at any other time in human history. And that movement is starting to spread into the Middle East as well. So as always, I mean, when it comes to the question of like, when will these things be? The answer basically is always like, any day. Like it could, it could be happening now, but maybe not. All right, so that's the great battle that will happen at the end. Let's now look at the great judgment that will take place at the end beginning at verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the, great, saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what we have pictured here, right after the end of the world, as we know it takes place, is immediately judgment. As earth and sky are said to have fled away, the judgment happens. At that moment, all the dead throughout all of human history are raised to stand before God to give an account of their lives. There at the judgment, the entire world will be exposed. No hiding, no pretending, no rationalizing, no minimizing, or any other way to avoid what you've thought, said, and done can take place because God is said to have kept a record of every single thing in his books. You ever stop to think about that? Have you ever stopped to consider having to stand before God utterly exposed for everything? I mean, on the one hand, every kind action you've ever done, every empathetic thought you've ever had, every affirming word you've said to someone in need, I suppose theoretically that could be written down in the book. 
but also at the same time, every vile thought you've ever had, every slanderous or secret word you've ever said, every action you are desperate that no one will ever find out about in your life. I mean, can you really imagine having to stand there, no explanations, no rationalizations, no excuses? Of course, I mean, the, the default response of most human, human beings is to think that God will look at his record and sort of weigh our good with our bad, right? I mean, that's the natural human response to the idea of judgment. And from there, I think most assume that their good will outweigh their bad, at least to some extent. Some definitely more than others. But even if I have a lot of bad on this side of the ledger, I'm 51-49, and God's going to say, 51's good enough. Come on in. You get heaven. Uh, indeed, just last week, I think it was Barna, but maybe not. Maybe it's Pew. Uh, in a poll, large-scale poll of evangelical Christians, though those who call themselves born-again evangelical Christians, vast majority of people polled said they are going to be saved on the last day based on what they've done. That God will weigh their good against their bad and be like, hey, you're pretty good. Come on in. But you know this. I mean, you've sat here. You guys, you've heard this before. God ain't judging any letter grade. It's not even really pass-fail. It is, it is righteous unrighteous. And the standard for passing the righteousness test is perfect imperfect. And so in order for anyone to pass this great judgment that is coming, and again could come any day, it is simply the case that they must be perfect in thought, word, and deed, or else they will be thrown to the same place that Satan is said to have been thrown, the lake of fire. But the prophet Isaiah says about humanity as a whole that even humanity's good deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. And Paul says in Romans 14, 23, that anything done apart from faith in Jesus Christ is sin. Even the really good stuff, if done apart from faith, is still seen as not good enough. Well, I mean, if you're paying attention, of course, then, I mean... <laughs> You can only come to the conclusion that the whole world's damned. No one's making it. I mean, no one is making it past this lake of fire. 
Unless there's another book that somehow trumps all the others with the long record of our failures. As John watches the scene of judgment take place, he makes note that there are the books, plural, in which all of the world's works are written, and yet another book, singular, called the Book of Life. And what that book is said to contain is all the names of those who have already been declared fit to pass the judgment into eternal life before they even arrive at heaven's gates. How you say can they have been deemed fit to pass into eternal life since all have fallen short of the glory of God? Well, because as the book is called in another part of Revelation, it is because it is the Lamb's book of life the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, let me break down the code. Those who are deemed worthy to head right into God's kingdom are those who have received what the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has done for them when he was slain on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, then the question comes like, well, how does one know whether their name is written in the book of life? And the Bible's answer is incredibly simple. You know your name is in the book of life because Jesus Christ has declared to all who believe that they are indeed forgiven on account of his life, death, and resurrection. And since this is the case, you, Christian, will not have your shortcomings displayed before the judge, but you right now are pardoned and declared to be perfect in his sight and granted entrance already seated at the right hand of God the Father next to Jesus Christ now in his kingdom. That's the reality of the judgment. I'll make it real simple. For those who want to try and hold up their works before God and see if they can pass the bar, there's no passing. For those that know they cannot pass the bar throughout their own works and instead need the works of another, Jesus Christ, immediate entrance is granted. It's that simple. Either you want your name written in the books with all the ledgers, or you're hoping your name is written in the book that the Lamb of God has won for you when he was slain from the foundation of the world. So that's the great judgment. So there's the great battle, there's the great judgment. All right, let's look at the last part. This is the great renewal. And we won't spend a lot of time on this, and we'll wrap it up in just a second, because I don't, I think I can just read it to you, and you can see the beauty of what's coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned 
for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Very important to point out here, folks. We think that when we go to heaven, we go up and up and up and probably in some sort of spirit form. What does the Bible present here? God's coming down, down, down to live and dwell amongst humanity. He is not, he is, he is renewing this earth. He is bringing heaven down to this earth. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But again, for those who want to go by their own works and try and pass the bar of judgment that way, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, such were some of you apart from faith in Jesus Christ, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been renewed already. But for those who reject the gift that has been given, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And that's the biblical story in a nutshell. For those who receive or reject the substitution of Christ on their behalf, death awaits. But for those, no matter how much they screwed up their life, no matter how much they blow it on a day-to-day -day basis, no matter how much they don't live up even to their confession of Jesus, for those who bet, who bet the blue chips on the fact that Jesus' substitution is enough for them, they will inherit the kingdom of God. They will be seen like sons and daughters. They will have their tears wiped away, and they will live in a place without viruses, without political strife. No more elections ever again! Woo! Without wars. Or rumors of wars without natural disasters and fires that ravage through dry land without any pain and destruction all of that is yours through faith in the Lamb of God who is slain before the foundation of the world and that is our hope this evening no matter what day we're in that said, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us to constantly place everything on what Jesus has done for us. When we're tempted to believe that it is our sin, it is our, it is our righteousness that 
is going to ultimately uh, make or break us, help us instead to go back to first things and remind us of our deep need for you day in and day out. We need thee every hour, Lord God. And because of that, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.